Section 10 of A Hypocritical Romance and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sally Sharp of www.soundsharp.com. A Hypocritical Romance and Other Stories by Carolyn Ticknor. The History of a Happy Thought. And the thought was this. I would ask all my young friends from the neighboring cottages to bring round their various musical instruments, and we would spend a jolly, informal evening on my wide, airy veranda. I knew that my young cousin Josephine had found her stay with me extremely quiet, and I determined to do a little something to make things a trifle more lively. And so I drove about our summer colony, inviting all my young friends who possessed banjos, guitars, etc., to bring them over in the evening. When I reached home, happy in the consciousness of well-doing, I was greeted by a telegram, announcing that my husband would bring down with him on the five o'clock boat two of our stiffest and most ceremonious English friends, Mr. and Mrs. Beresford Pierce. I looked at Josephine in dismay. What shall I do about those banjos? It is after five now, and I haven't time to send them word not to come, and yet I wouldn't for the world have the Beresford Pierces think that I had specially invited such a collection of extraordinary young musicians to entertain them. They are both intensely and critically musical, so that it would not do. Still, I have just time to see that the cook gives us a little something to eat, and you must help me to arrange some flowers. We must explain to them just how it happened, and no doubt the young folks will prefer to talk most of the time. After our guests had been duly escorted to their room, however, I hastened to inquire what my husband thought of the prospective music. He seemed much pleased at the idea, and declared that it was certainly a most happy thought. It's just the sort of thing they will enjoy, he assured me, and he hurried away without giving me a chance to explain that I had not invited all the banjos after I received his message. Charlie hasn't a bit of tact, at all events, and when at dessert the conversation drifted towards music, he announced with a reassuring smile at me that I was planning to have some music after dinner. Our guests seemed much pleased at the prospect, and Mrs. Beresford Pierce said dreamily that they had not heard any good music since they left London. I hurriedly explained that we were merely expecting a few young friends with guitars and banjos, and assured them that it would not be classical music with which they would be apt to favor us, but our English friends insisted that it would be a great treat. We were finishing our coffee when the Emmonses arrived with their banjos. Now, Fred, you and Tom can give us some tunes before the others come over, I suggested, as we adjourned to the piazza. I think we had better wait until the others get here, he replied. But we will tune up while we are waiting. Give me your third string, Tom, he added. Oh, let me get it in tune first, responded Tom. I put on some new strings this afternoon, and they are all off. 
It was quite evident from his efforts to bring them back that they were a long way off, but at last they seemed to give satisfaction, at which point Fred proceeded to repeat the process, varying it, however, by two loud snaps. Strings do not last long at the seashore, he announced, cheerfully selecting new ones with great deliberation. You are tuned up too high, Tom. You must come down, or I shall break every string I own. I called Mrs. Beresford Pierce's attention to the lights in the harbor, and I was glad to note that Charlie was indicating the points of interest to her husband. Meanwhile, Tom proceeded to come down without evincing that rapidity which usually characterizes a descent from any elevated position. They declared a moment later that they were in perfect tune, a fact which I saw that our guests apparently doubted. Nevertheless, I hastened to say, do play some of your quaint darky melodies. We could give you Swanee River or a jig, Tom replied, and as I remarked that the jig would be nice, I perceived three figures advancing across the piazza and I recognized Mrs. Brown and her two nephews. I am glad to see some more of my orchestra, I called out gaily, though I had been devoutly hoping that something would prevent their coming. Are they really an organized orchestra? Mrs. Beresford Pierce questioned gravely. Oh, no, I explained. They have never played together until this evening. And then, after introducing the Browns and finding chairs for them, I begged the musicians to begin. The young Browns had brought a piccolo and a banjoine, which they at once began to tune vigorously while we sat patiently by. The piccolo was determined not to harmonize with the banjos, and I could see that Mrs. Beresford Pierce's finely trained nerves were undergoing exquisite torture while her husband sat regarding the musicians with a fixed and wondering gaze. Even Charlie was getting impatient. Let us have that jig, he cried out. The Emmonses asked the Browns if they knew it, but they said they didn't. But couldn't the others play the Invincible Guards March? No, they had never learned that. After a long consultation, they agreed to try the Spanish Fandango, which they actually started. By the time they reached the second variation, one of the Browns broke a string, and during the pause which ensued, Rose Elwood appeared with her guitar and accompanied by her brother. I had great difficulty in persuading Harry to bring his bones over, Rose announced. Ah, what fun it is to have so many instruments together, she concluded, joining the orchestra, while Mrs. Beresford Pierce whose knowledge of bones was confined to her acquaintance with physiology, looked curiously at Harry. Just then I overheard Rose saying, Let me have your third string, Mr. Emmons. It always takes me so long to get this guitar in tune. Charlie was walking up and down with his hands in his pockets. Play something, play anything, my friends, he exclaimed. This suspense is wearing us out, I assure you. As the tuning still continued, I suggested that perhaps it would be wiser for the audience to go inside, since it was growing rather cold. 
and new musicians can come in when you are ready to play, I added, noting with satisfaction that Charlie had taken Mr. Beresford Pierce to the farther end of the piazza for a quiet smoke. We had hardly settled ourselves near the blazing wood fire in the hall for a quiet chat before the door opened, and our musical friends appeared, announcing that it was no use trying to tune up outside where it was so damp. I looked mournfully at the other ladies. Mrs. Brown was smiling serenely. She lived in the house with the piccolo and the banjoine. Not so, Mrs. Beresford Pierce. She was trying to smile, but without success, and I could see that she was suffering acutely. Let me have your second string, the banjoine was saying to the guitar. The piccolo was endeavoring to reach the new pitch, and the banjos were tumming experimentally, while Harry Elwood kept time with the bones. All the musicians were serenely happy and quite unconscious of the fact that the rest of us were not provided with instruments to tune. Aren't we to have some music? I queried, in a tone which might have been defined as bittersweet. But at that very moment I heard Arthur Brown protesting, I cannot tune my piccolo up to that last key, so you will all have to come down a little. What? Are we still tuning? questioned Charlie in comic dismay as he ushered in Mr. Beresford Pierce. I nodded. Alas, I thought feebly to myself, if it were only still tuning, but it is such painfully loud tuning. And the worst of it was that my guests were under the impression that I had asked in all these strange, unmanageable instruments on purpose to entertain them. At that moment I could have wept freely. Then I rallied and pulled myself together. I crossed the room and touched the electric bell, at which signal Jane appeared, bearing a tray with cake and ices. Now suppose we have a little intermission, I announced, and my impromptu orchestra relinquished their instruments, though a trifle regretfully. They were enjoying it so much. We finished our ices in peace, and... Having taken things into my own hands, I determined not to relinquish my advantage, so I spoke up boldly. We will not try the orchestra all together again this evening, I said, but we will hear them in sections, and we'll begin with The Invincible Guards March by the two Mr. Browns, followed by their choicest waltz. They accomplished these selections successfully, after which the Emmons boys, accompanied by the Bones, played a jig which quite brought down the house and even necessitated an encore then rose sang two very charming ballads with her guitar which sounded so sweetly that mrs beresford pierce thawed completely and told rose that she really ought to have her voice cultivated and that she only wished she could take lessons of her teacher in london rose forbore to mention the fact that she had been faithfully trying to cultivate her voice for two years and only begged that mrs beresford pierce would sing something after some demurring she finally gave us robin adair in a clear rich voice while rose played an accompaniment timidly on her guitar 
from this moment our English friends seemed to be really enjoying themselves, and we all entered into the college songs with great enthusiasm. I noted with surprise that all the instruments were actually going at once, and seemed to be in pretty good tune. Mr. Beresford Pierce was heard to whistle Annie Laurie with variations, while Charlie went so far as to execute an Irish jig. I glanced at our English guests to see if they were shocked, but was reassured when, a moment later, Mr. Beresford Pierce volunteered that he knew something about a Scotch hornpipe himself, which he performed, after some urging, to the stirring strains of the banjos and bones. This crowning event called forth a burst of applause which bespoke a truly appreciative audience and when several of the musicians declared that it was time to go, I was astonished to learn how late it was. My musicale had been a success after all, I meditated, as I laid my weary head on my pillow, but I must explain in the morning that such an entertainment was wholly accidental. Possibly they may have enjoyed it, I said to myself, but they shall not go away from here thinking that when I knew they were coming, I went and invited in a lot of instruments which had never played together before by way of entertaining them. My last words to Charlie were, If I do not get time to explain things at breakfast, you must promise to tell them just how it happened on the way up to town. Of course, he forgot all about it, and never mentioned it during the whole long hour which it took them to sail up to the city, with twenty minutes extra thrown in for fog, and he certainly couldn't have been showing them the points of interest, as it was so thick they couldn't see six inches ahead of them. I can't imagine what he could have talked about all that time, but it could not have been anything very interesting, for he couldn't recall a word that he had said. He assured me afterwards, so I believe he read his paper all the time. And in spite of my efforts to do so, I couldn't make Charlie realize that my reputation as a typical American hostess had been at stake. A few weeks later, I read aloud the following extract from a letter I had just received from a friend at Newport. Last week, I had the pleasure of meeting some delightful English people who spoke most enthusiastically of you, dear. They are Mr. and Mrs. Beresford Pierce, and... They are being greatly lionized here on all sides. They spoke, however, of an evening at your home by the sea, which they considered without exception the most charming that they had spent. Knowing how tremendously they had been run after, I could not help wondering what special attraction you had provided, you clever creature. When later I had a chance to inquire, I learned that at the shortest possible notice you had provided a kind of impromptu orchestra with banjos guitars etc they said it was so charmingly spontaneous and unconventional that they considered it a typical american evening which they should always look back upon with special pleasure i envy your originality dear for who else would have thought of inviting in a collection of musical instruments of that sort on the spur of the moment, to entertain such very stiff English people. I laid the letter down with a sigh, for I felt I had received a rather doubtful compliment. But Charlie was much pleased. Good, he exclaimed. Now, perhaps you are convinced that it was a happy thought, after all.
End of section 10. Recording by Sally Sharp, www.soundsharp.com.